Section 31 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Miller. Chapter 9, The Reformation in France by A. A. Tilly, Part 2. The New War with Charles V which broke out in April 1536, left the French king no leisure for the suppression of heresy. But after the truce at Nice and the interview with the emperor at Aigues-Mortes, 1538, Francis began to address himself in earnest to his task. After two partial edicts, the first addressed to the Parliament of Toulouse, December 16, 1538, and the second to the parliaments of Toulouse, Bordeaux, and Rouen, June 24, 1539, he issued from the Fontainebleau on June 1, 1540, a general edict of great severity. It introduced a more efficient and rapid procedure for the trial of heretics, which, with a slight modification made by the Edict of Paris, July 23, 1543, enlarging the powers of the ecclesiastical courts, remained in force for the next nine years. On August 29, 1542, another edict was addressed to the Parliament of Toulouse, followed on the next day by a mandamus to those of Paris, Bordeaux, Dijon, Grenoble, and Rouen. The Parliament of Aix required no such stimulus. Meanwhile, the Sorbonne, had been engaged in drawing up 26 articles in which the true Catholic faith on all the disputed points was set forth. It was their answer to the French translation of the Institutio, which Calvin had completed in 1541, from the second and greatly enlarged Latin edition. The articles were ratified by a royal ordinance of July 23, 1543. The answer of the Parliament of Paris had been of a more material character. On July 1st, 1542, it issued a long edict concerning the supervision of the press, of which the first clause ordered all copies of the Institutio to be given up within 24 hours. On February 14th, 1544, these were solemnly burnt with other books, including several printed by Etienne Dolay. This was shortly followed by the publication of the first Index Expurgatorius, issued by the Sorbonne, which was registered by the Parliament ten months later. In this policy of repression, the King had the active support of four men, the Inquisitor-General Mathieu Horry, the first President of the Parliament of Paris, Pierre Lisée, soon to become even more notorious as the President of the Chambre Ardente, the Chancellor, Guillaume Poyer, who had succeeded the moderate Antoine de Ball on November 12, 1538, and the foremost among them, the Cardinal de Tournon, now all-powerful with the King and practically his first minister. Though the Cardinal was a liberal patron of learning and letters, he was a relentless and untiring foe to the new religious doctrines. He is worth to France an inquisition in himself, said a contemporary. It is significant also that just at this time, 
Francis lost one of his ablest and most enlightened ministers, and the French reformers, one of their best friends in Guillaume de Bellay, who died in January 1543. With such a man in power as the Cardinal de Tonon, there was not likely to be any slackness in the execution of the edicts. The earlier half of the year 1541 was a period of special distress for the French reformers. And throughout the years 1540 to 1544, constant additions were made to the role of their martyrs. It is chiefly of isolated cases that we hear, at most of three or four at a time, there were no auto de fe. The stress of persecution had compelled the reformers to practice prudence and secrecy. But each fresh execution added strength to the cause. One martyr made many converts. The Peace of Crepy, September 18, 1544, with its vague provisions for the reunion of religion and for the prevention of the extreme danger which threatened it, boded evil to the reformers. The next year, 1545, memorable as the year in which the Council of Trent held its first sitting, is also memorable for an act which has left a dark stain on the history of France and the Church, the massacres of the Waldenses of Provence. In 1530, these peaceful followers of Peter Waldo who dwelt in about thirty villages along the Durance, having heard of the religious doctrines that were being preached in Germany and Switzerland, sent two envoys to some of the leading reformers to lay before them their own tenets and to submit to them forty-seven questions on which they were desirous of instruction. They received long answers from Ecolampadius and Bousset, and in consequence held in September 1532 a conference of their ministers at Angrogne in Piedmont, at which they drew up a confession of faith chiefly based on the replies of the two reformers. They also agreed to contribute 500 gold crowns to the printing of the new French translation of the scriptures, which was in contemplation. This affiliation of their sect to the Lutheran heresy naturally attracted the attention of the ecclesiastical authorities. Accordingly, Jean de Roma, the inquisitor of the faith for Provence, who had already begun to exhort the Waldenses to abjure their heresy, set on foot a cruel persecution. The unfortunate Waldenses appealed to the king, who sent commissioners to investigate the matter. Roma was condemned but escaped punishment by flight to Avignon. And the Waldenses, profiting by the comparative favor that was shown to the reformers at this time, considerably increased in number. But in 1535, the Archbishop and Parliament of Aix renewed the persecution. And on November 18, 1540, the Parliament issued an order, afterwards known as the Arrêt de Merindol, by which seventeen inhabitants of Merindol and the neighborhood, who had been summoned before the bar of Parliament and had failed to appear, were sentenced to be burned. Owing, however, to the action of the first president, the order was not put into immediate execution, and the matter having come to the king's ears, he ordered Q. 
Guillaume de Bellay, his lieutenant general in Piedmont, to make an inquiry into the character and religious opinions of the Waldenses. As a result of this inquiry, the king granted a pardon to the condemned, provided that they abjured their errors within three months, February 8, 1541. The order was still suspended over their heads when, at the close of 1543, Jean Menier, seigneur de Opède, a man of brutal ferocity, succeeded to the office of first president of the Parliament of Aix. The Waldenses again appealed to the king and were again protected, 1544. Accordingly, the Parliament dispatched a messenger to the king with the false statement that the people of Marandol were in open rebellion and were even threatening Marseille. With the help of the Cardinal de Tournon, they obtained upon this statement new letters patent from the king, revoking his former letters and ordering that all who were found guilty of the Waldensian heresy should be exterminated January 1, 1545. The decree was kept secret until an army had been collected, and then, on April 12th, Oped, who, in the absence of the governor of Provence, was acting as his deputy, called together the parliament, read the decree, and appointed four commissioners to carry it into execution. Within a week, Merandol, Cabrière, and other villages were in ashes, and at Cabrière alone, 800 persons, including women and children, are said to have been put to death. The work of destruction continued for nearly two months, and in the end it was computed that 3,000 men, women, and children had been killed, and 22 villages burned, while the flower of the men were sent to galleys. Many of the survivors fled to the country to find a refuge in Switzerland. If the execution of the 14 of Mont falls far short of the massacre of the Vaudois, as regards the number of its victims, its strictly judicial character makes it more instructive as an example of the treatment of heretics. In the year 1546, the reformers of Mont organized themselves into a church after the pattern of that set up by the French refugees at Strasbourg eight years before. They chose as their first pastor a wool carter named Pierre Leclerc, a brother of the man who was burnt at Metz. Their number increased under his ministry, and the matter soon came to the ears of the authorities. On September 8th, a sudden descent was made on the congregation, and 60 persons were arrested and sent to Paris to be tried by the Parliament. Their greatest crime was that they had celebrated the Holy Communion. On October 4th, sentence was pronounced. Fourteen were sentenced to be tortured, and burned, five to be flogged and banished, ten, while women, were set free, while the remainder were to undergo graduated forms of penance. The sentences were carried out at Mont on October 7th. Etienne Mangin, in whose house the services had always been held, and Leclerc were carried to the stake on hurdles, the rest on tumbrils. They had all previously undergone what was known as extraordinary torture, and all had refused to reveal the names of other reformers at Mont. At the stake, 
six yielded so far as to confess to a priest, thereby escaping the penalty of having their tongues cut out. The others, who remained firm, suffered this additional barbarity, which it was the custom to inflict on those who died impenitent. The congregation at Mont was thus broken up, but the survivors carried the evangelical seeds to other towns in France. The fourteen of Mont were not the only victims of the year 1546. Five others had already been burned at Paris, including the scholar and printer Etienne Dolay. Others were burned in the provinces. The next year, 1547, opened with fresh executions, and on January 14th, the mutilation of a statue of the Virgin was expiated by a solemn procession at Paris. Such was the policy which Francis I began definitely to adopt towards Protestantism after the affair of the Placard, and which he put into active execution during the last seven years of his life. How far was it successful? As we have seen, it drove a large number of persons into exile, and these consisted chiefly of the better-born and better-educated among the reformers. It intimidated many into outward conformity with the Church. It prevented all public exercise of the reformed religion and all open propaganda. Religious meetings were held by night or in cellars. Doctrines were spread by secret house-to-house teaching or by treatises concealed amongst the wares of pretended peddlers. On the other hand, the frequent executions helped to spread the evil they were meant to repress. The firm courage with which the victims faced death did as much as the purity of their lives to convert others to their faith. Moreover, the influence of the exiles reacted on their old homes. From Geneva and the other Swiss centers of Protestantism, missionaries came to evangelize France. The result was that there was no longer a province in France except Brittany in which Protestantism had not acquired a foothold. In all the large towns, it had been established at an early date. In Lyon, the most enlightened town of France, the Lutherans were already described in 1524 as swarming. At Bordeaux, where the first seed had been sown by Farel, the preaching of a Franciscan, Thomas Irulicus, in 1526, had produced a rich harvest, and the revival in 1532 of the old College of Arts under the name of the College of Guyenne, had done much to foster the movement. Rouen was deeply infected in 1531, and hence the contagion spread to other parts of Normandy and to Amiens in Picardy. Orléans became an important center, partly through the influence of Melchior Volmar, who lived there from 1528 to the end of 1530. Even in Toulouse, where the university had been founded as a bulwark of orthodoxy and on the whole had fully maintained its reputation, the new doctrines could not be kept out, and in 1532, Jean de Catos, a young licentiate of laws, was burned at the stake. Other universities contributed to the spread of evangelical teaching. Poitiers, Angers, Bourg, and especially Nîmes, 
the new foundation of Margaret of Navarre, the rector of which was the well-known humanist Claude Baduel, an avowed Protestant. At Poitiers, one of the professors of theology, Charles de Saint-Martre, openly taught the new doctrines till, a persecution breaking out in 1537, he had to fly for his life. Protestantism was also rife at Loudon and Fontenay, and before long spread to Niort and La Rochelle. Poitou became the stronghold of French Protestantism. Other provinces to which it gained admission at an early date were Dauphine, where Ferrel had preached in 1522, and the Vivarais, in which Annonay, near the Rhone, had become an important center. As was natural, the waterways of the great rivers helped to spread the movement. On the Loire, there was hardly a town from Le Puy to Angers which it did not reach, while between Orléans and Tours it took a firm hold. It worked up the Sarthe to Le Mans and Alençon, and up the Allier to Moulins and Issoire. It penetrated the Limousin by the Vienne and La Marche by the Creuse. It made its way along the Seine from Rouen to Troyes and along the Yonne to Sens and Auxerre. From Lyon, it traveled down the Rhone to Tournon and up the Saône to Macon and Chalon. At Dijon, the old capital of the Duchy of Burgundy, a Lutheran was executed in 1530, and soon afterwards a pastor was sent there from Geneva. Argent, on the Garonne, formed a connecting link between Bordeaux and Toulouse. Saint-Foy and Bergerac were reached by the Dordogne, and Villeneuve by the Long. The preaching of Philibert Hamelin at Saintes has been described in a well-known passage by his fellow Protestant Bernard Palissy. Thence it spread up the Charente to Cognac and Angoulême. This, then, was the result of the repressive policy which Francis I had carried out with more or less consistency for ten years. The outward manifestation of Protestantism was indeed kept under, though not without difficulty. But the work of propagandism went on in secret until nearly the whole of France was covered with a network of posts which, insignificant enough at present, were ready at a favorable opportunity and with proper organization to become active centers of militant Protestantism. But a change was now impending in the government of France. At the end of January 1547, Francis I was seized with a serious illness, which terminated fatally on the 31st of March. He was succeeded by his only surviving son, under the title of Henry II. Henry's policy toward the Protestants from the first was far more uniformly rigorous than his father's. It was not biased either by sympathy with humanism or by the necessity of conciliating his Protestant allies. Moreover, it was the one point of policy upon which all his advisers were agreed. Here the opposing influences of Montrancy and Guise united in a common aim. In the very first year of his reign, 
a second criminal court of the Parliament of Paris was created for the trial of heretics, October 8, 1547. It became known as La Chambre Ardente and fully deserved its name. From the beginning of December 1547 to January 10, 1550, it must have condemned to death at least a hundred persons, belonging for the most part to the class of smaller shopkeepers and artisans, and that, although its jurisdiction was confined to a quarter of France. The provincial parliaments, especially those of Rouen, Toulouse, and Aix, were no less active. Owing to the jealousy of the ecclesiastical courts, the sole right of trying cases of heresy was restored to them by an edict of November 19, 1549, and the Chambre Ordante was temporarily suppressed. But the ecclesiastical courts continued to show remissness, and a new edict was issued from Chateaubriand on June 27, 1551. It transferred to the civil courts the cognizance of heretical acts which involved a public scandal or disturbance and encouraged informers by the promise of a third of the accused property. Fresh executions in various parts of France showed that the judges were more to be relied on than the bishops. In March 1553, the Chambre Ardente was revived, and soon afterwards an execution took place at Lyon, which made a deep impression on the public mind. It was that of the five scholars of Lausanne, natives of different places in the southwest of France. They had gone to Lausanne to prepare themselves by study for the work of evangelization. One had lodged with Beza, another with Viré. On their return home, they were arrested at Lyon, May 1st, 1552, and condemned to death for heresy by the ecclesiastical judge. Having appealed to the Parliament of Paris, they were kept for a whole year in prison awaiting its decision. Beza, Pierre Viré, the cantons of Zurich and Bern interceded in vain with the king and with the cardinal of Turon. The scholars were burnt on May 16th, 1553. They had been guilty of no crime except that of heretical opinions. They had committed no act which could possibly be construed as dangerous to the public peace or to the orthodox religion. Their execution made a deep impression, and the account of it fills a large space in Crespin's Martyrology, which appeared in the following year, 1554 and immediately took rank with the Protestant Bible and the Protestant Psalter as a cherished source of inspiration and support in persecution. In the year 1555, French Protestantism took a definite step forwards. It began to organize its churches. It is true that before this date, churches had been established at Mont, 1546, and Nîmes, 1547. But they had both been broken up by persecution. Now Paris set the example. The church was organized, as that of Meaux had been, on the model of that of Strasbourg, founded by Calvin in 1538. 
Jean Le Masson, surnamed La Riviere, was chosen as pastor, and he was assisted in the work of government by a consistory of elders and deacons. In the same year, churches were organized after the same pattern at Angers, Poitiers, and Laudon, and in the little peninsula of Arvers, between the Gironde and the Sûre. In the following year, 1556, were added Blois and Montoir in the Orléanaise, Bourges, Essoudan, and Aubigny in Berry, and Tours, while the Church of Mont was refounded in the same year. The churches of Orléans and Rouen date from 1557, and as many as 20 were established in 1558, including Dieppe, Troyes, Bordeaux, La Rochelle, Toulouse, and Rennes. This important work was due largely to the instigation of Calvin, and was carried out under his supervision. During the eleven years from 1555 to 1566, no less than 120 pastors were sent from Geneva to France. Geneva was in fact now regarded as the capital of French Protestantism. French refugees had gone there in increasing numbers, and had contributed to Calvin's definite triumph over his opponents in the very year, 1555, in which the French churches began to be organized. Meanwhile, the French government was devising a more powerful engine for the suppression of Protestantism. At the instance of the Cardinal of Lorraine, edicts were drawn up establishing an inquisition after the Spanish pattern. They were submitted to the Parliament of Paris early in the year 1555, but the Parliament refused to register them, and when Pierre Seguier, one of the presidents à Mortier, appeared before the king to justify its action, October 22, 1555, he spoke with such convincing eloquence that the matter was dropped for a time. But in 1557, Henry, finding the existing machinery for the suppression of heresy still insufficient, obtained a papal brief authorizing the proposed step. To this was joined a diploma appointing the cardinals of Lorraine, Bourbon, and Châtillon as inquisitors general, April 25, 1557. As, however, the Parliament refused to recognize it, the brief remained inoperative, and the king had to content himself with a new edict against heresy, which was issued from Compiègne, on July 24th. Before it was registered, January 15, 1558, a fresh persecution broke out. The defeat of Saint-Quentin, August 10th, had thrown Paris into a paroxysm of unreasoning terror, which was repeated on the news of the surrender of the town, August 27th. On the evening of September 4th, a congregation of three or four hundred Protestants which had assembled for worship in a large house in the Rue Saint-Jacques, was attacked by a furious mob. The majority of the men, many of whom were armed, forced their way out, but the rest remained in the building till the arrival of a magistrate and an armed force, when they were carried off to prison. As a result of the investigations which followed, seven persons, including a young married lady of rank, were burned. There were also some high-born ladies among those prisoners who were eventually released. 
the fact is significant. During the last few years, Protestantism, which at first affected mainly the artisan class, had begun to spread among the higher ranks of society, and it now received some notable accessions. François d'Andelot, the youngest of the Châtillon brothers, became a Protestant during his imprisonment at Melun, and the imprisonment of Gaspard de Coligny after the fall of Saint-Quentin had the same result. About the same time, Antoine de Bourbon, the titular king of Navarre, who was the next in succession to King Henry II and his sons, joined the ranks of the reformers. He was followed by his brother, Louis, Prince of Condé. The most active of these converts was Dandelot. In April 1558, he visited his wife's large estate in Brittany, together with one of the Paris pastors, Gaspard Carmel, and thus helped to spread Protestantism in that remote and conservative province. But soon after his return to Paris, he was arrested by the king's order and confined at Melun for two months. The immediate cause of his arrest was his alleged presence in the Pré-aux-Clercs, where for five successive evenings, May 13th through 17th, a large concourse of persons of all ranks had assembled to take part in the singing of Marot's psalms. The psalm singing was stopped, but it made a considerable stir, for as many as five or six thousand were said to have taken part in it. The Protestants, it was evident, were increasing rapidly in numbers as well as in importance. Calvin, writing on February 24th in this year, says that he had been told by a good authority that there were 300,000 Protestants in France. In the following year, 1559, another important step was taken. On May 26th, the first synod of the French Protestant Church was opened at Paris. We do not know how many deputies were present, but apparently there were representatives of a considerable portion of the 40 to 50 churches then constituted, though doubtless, in some cases, the same deputy represented several churches. There was also a lay element consisting of elders. The pastor of the parish church, François Morel, was chosen as president. The outcome of the synod, which transacted its business in haste and secrecy, was a scheme of church government or discipline, and a confession of faith. The discipline, which was based on the principle of equality of the individual churches, recognized the already prevailing organization in each church, namely the pastor and the consistory of elders and deacons. The election to the consistory, being by co-optation, the government was practically an oligarchy. It remained to weld together the various churches into a united whole. This was done by instituting first an assembly called a colloquy, which bound together a group of neighboring churches, then above this a provincial synod, and finally, to crown the edifice, a national synod. The Confession of Faith was based on one drawn up by Calvin and sent to the King of France towards the close of 1557. Though Calvin was opposed 
to any confession being issued by the Synod, in case they should persist in their intention, he sent to them an enlarged form of his former confession, and this, with a few alterations and some additions, was adopted. The language of it is singularly clear and noble, and is doubtless Calvin's own. A few days after the close of the Synod, the king attended a meeting of the whole Parliament of Paris. It was an unusual proceeding on his part, but the occasion was a special one, namely the adjourned consideration of the whole religious question, which had been recently discussed in a mercurial, or Wednesday sitting, held at the end of April. Many speakers opposed the repressive policy of the government, the boldest being Anne de Bourg, nephew of the former Chancellor, Antoine de Bourg, who advocated the suspension of all persecution of those who were called heretics. Henry was highly incensed at the plain speaking of the councillors, and had Dubourg and three others arrested. He vowed that he would see Dubourg burned with his own eyes. But on the last day of June, at the jousts in the Tonelle, held in honor of the approaching marriage between Philip of Spain and Elizabeth of France, Henry was mortally wounded above the right eye by the broken lance of his antagonist, Gabriel de Montgomery, the captain of his Scottish guard. He died on July 10, 1559.